uh, I'd like to introduce this person who's going to share their story tonight. Uh, when I met her, uh, I was immediately happy. She is, <laughs> she will just make you happy when you talk to her. She's like, man, I just want to be happy now. Uh, and uh, since I met her, she came over. The first time I actually met her was a prayer meeting at my house. And uh, it was off to a good start, someone who shows up just for a prayer meeting. Um, and she's been serving with us on Sunday nights since we started in August. So um, I wanted her to share how she came to know Christ. So I'm going to welcome up Jessica Cordero. So come on up, Jessica. There's a rumbling. I think maybe it's my mic. Hello, everybody. My name is Jessica Cordero. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I just thank you for this night. I thank you for all the people here, Lord, and for just your spirit here, God, and just for this church service that you've given us a place to come and worship you, Lord, and thank you for these testimonies, God. They've, always, they've already been such a blessing to all of us, God, and I pray that mine is the same, Lord, that you just speak through me and help everyone here just to hear the words that you want um, them to hear to them personally, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So my name is Jessica Cordero, and my testimony starts about a week before my 16th birthday. I was raised as a Christian in a Christian home with great Christian parents, but like everybody has to come to the point where they make a decision for themselves if they want to actually serve God and follow after him or if they just want to go about their own way. So even though I was raised a Christian, I had to come to that point where I was going to make that decision. So my testimony is really about the day that um, I made the decision to follow after Christ. So I started to go to the youth group that was meeting at my old middle school. I was currently in high school. I was a junior in high school. And my best friend had invited me back to go to this youth group because she had a crush on one of the boys there. So being her best friend, I said yes, and I started to go to the youth group. <clears throat> and I really enjoyed it there. I had great youth leaders. They kind of brought me in as um, just kind of like their friend. You know, they would like hang out with me and <clears throat> teach me about God and really just love me. And, um, even though I had a great life and great friends, I just really uh, felt at home there, and they really made an impression on me with just the way that they treated me and, and really just loved me. Um, so I really liked to be involved in the youth group. I would go to all the youth events, and I just wanted to be there all the time with these wonderful people. And so one night, the youth group had decided to go see uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movie. It was the first movie. That was like 11 years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. But we went to the block there in Orange, and... I know we saw the late showing because I remember when we got out of the movie, I was super tired. And then I was, um, one of the youth leaders had taken all the kids, so he was in the process of dropping us all off at our homes, and I lived the farthest away, so I was the last, you know, stop on his route. And so as he's driving me home, again, it's really late, we're both really tired, but he's just talking to me about God and just about the Bible and just going on about, you know, all these things. And, and that really made an impression on me because, you know, we were both tired. He could have been talking about anything else or really nothing, and we could have just driven home in silence, you know, but he wanted to talk about God because that's what he was passionate about. And I called myself a Christian too, you know, and, um, but what I saw in him was just this passion and this desire to, to really speak into someone's life and to um, encourage them when he could. So that was a little bit disturbing to me because as a Christian, I, you know, should have been like this other person. Like I should have been, you know, knowledgeable and talking about God too, but I didn't have that same desire, so that really kind of stuck with me. <clears throat> he was talking that night to me. He wasn't preaching to me because, for all he knew, I was walking with the Lord just the same as he was. But he was talking to me about um, 
It says in 1 Corinthians 13 about how if you have faith, you can have knowledge, you can have prophecy, but if you don't have love, it really means nothing. So when I got home, I flipped, you know, into my Bible to the back, to the concordance, and I was looking up those words, you know, faith, knowledge, prophecy, and I came across the verses in 1 Corinthians 13. So I read through the whole chapter, you know, we all know that's the love chapter, and it wasn't so much the content of the scripture that really made the impression on me. What really moved me was the fact that this is the first time I picked up my Bible in months, if not longer. And if I'm a Christian, you know, you know, like I said, growing up in a Christian home, you at least know you should be reading your Bible, you should be praying, but I wasn't doing any of those things. So that really hit me hard, and I just started to break down, and I just started to cry. And I was just there on my bed, just crying, and I just kept repeating the phrase, Lord, take it all away, Lord, take it all away. And I, at the time when I was praying that, I really had no idea why I was saying that. And I felt really silly, because I'm like, what, take away what, you know? But the next morning when I woke up, I know what God took away. He took away my sadness. He took away my depression. He took away my general dislike of life. Um, before that, my mom had asked me one time, you know, Jessica, do you enjoy being sad? Do you enjoy being miserable? Because that's how you appear to people. You appear, you know, depressed all the time. Is that how you want your life to be? But the day after I really committed my life to the Lord, <clears throat> I woke up full of joy, and that joy hasn't left. And and I remember that day, the, the world looked so much more beautiful to me. Like, the, you know, it was like, you know, the birds were chirping and, you know, everything was greener and more beautiful. And I just felt this peace and this sense of joy in my heart. And I, you know, being one of the people that stands up here saying, you know, I grew up as a Christian, um, you know, no testimony is any less miraculous because every person that, you know, believes in the Lord has that thing in common that the Holy Spirit now lives in them. And that's a miracle in and of itself, to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And it says, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and that's what he's given me. So every testimony um, is really a miracle. But my testimony doesn't stop there. I'd like to say that it did. I'd like to say I gave up, you know, all sin in my life and lived a, you know, pure and righteous life going forward, but such was not the case. Um, I was still seeking after things to fulfill me, um, mainly relationships. Uh, I wanted to be in a relationship. I either found myself in a bad relationship or in no relationship and lonely. So it didn't really help that it seemed like everyone around me was happy or getting married. My best friend got married at a pretty young age, so it kind of felt like I wasn't, you know, on that same track. And so that was kind of hard. And so I started to think and see that God's blessings were just by chance, that, you know, if, you know, he wanted to bless someone with a good relationship, he would, but if he didn't, you know, that was his prerogative. And, you know, I just started to see my life as, you know, is kind of going in one direction and maybe not, I never really saw myself, you know, getting married or, or so on and so forth. So um, that's the way I saw life. And I really know, looking back now, that it was just a lack of faith. I didn't, you know, I didn't believe that God would bless me because I was scared, you know, like I, I didn't want to see it because, you know, I was fearful that my life would continue on the same path. But that all changed, luckily. Uh, someone gave me a book, it's called Harvest. It's the story of um, many Calvary Chapel pastors. It's a really good book. I highly suggest it. Um, they tell the story of pastors like Raul Reese, Skip Heidsick, um, various pastors that have really radical testimonies. Um, and again, it wasn't so much the content of the book uh, that really impressed me, but just the overall theme was that of God's blessing on those who are obedient to him. And it was the first time in my life I really connected that, that I can expect God to bless me, that I don't have to you know, wonder if uh, God's just going to do this, for, you know, why does he do things for certain people and not for others? I really saw that as you seek the Lord and as you submit to him and really do give up those things that, that he doesn't want you to have in your life, then you can expect that he's going to bless your life. 
And so it was at that time that I started to pray for contentment. I really prayed hard for that because I didn't want to be one of those people that walked around living such a beautiful, blessed life, but yet with a sense of discontentment in my life. I started to pray to God for that, and he did give me that contentment. Thank the Lord. And so I saw him start to bless my life as I really gave up that, um, you know, discontentment and lack of trust in my life. I saw him bless me, and he has blessed me. He's blessed me with a beautiful husband. I got married about three and a half months ago, so that was awesome. And so, you know, that one thing that I've wanted in my life, God has always had that for me. And, you know, it's finally the time for him to to give that blessing. But I know that, um, you know, we have a responsibility to lay aside those things that he's calling us to give up, and he will bless you um, in the process. So we have a little apartment, which is amazing. People have been giving us furniture, so I'm starting to see that blessing. Um, But my blessing, you know, looks different than your blessing. There are certain things that God gives you a desire for personally. And I just want to encourage you all that don't allow those trials or those hardships in your life. Don't allow those to to take you down and don't allow them to destroy your faith. Have faith in what God has shown you and what God has told you that he will bless you with because he will give you those things in due time. It's so easy to get swayed by what you feel or what you, you don't have the faith to believe that God will give you. But I just encourage you all to have that faith and submit to him give aside those things that are holding you up and just wait for the Lord's blessing. So that's my testimony. Thank you. We are in Mark chapter four tonight. Wow, I you know, I didn't know that, Jessica, about you, that before you were sad and a little depressed. I <laughs> I can't even imagine a Jessica that's sad. So, chapter four. Well, before we actually get started with the scripture reading, let me pray and and uh, share a couple things with you. And we'll kind of we're going to do this study a little different rather than read the scripture all up front. We're going to read it as we go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this evening. We thank you, dear God, that you are in our midst. Lord, your Holy Spirit is here, ready to speak to us. And Lord God, I just pray that you would help us to apply the wor- your word to our lives, Lord. Help us to leave here different than when we came in. God, we look to you for all these things, and we ask you to bless this time. In your son's holy name, amen. Uh, Dr. Vin was grading essays he had just given for, for the final uh, of his class, and he opened one of the exam books, and <laughs> what he found was a failing student had put in a $100 bill with, uh, <laughs> with this statement in it, $100 equals I get an A, 100%. So a month later when the student was checking his grades, uh, he approached the professor because he realized that he had failed the class, so he went to the professor uh, following up after the semester and said, hey, I don't understand. Why did I fail your class? And the professor gave him back the composition notebook, almost like he knew that this student would be coming looking for it. When he took back the notebook, he opened it up, and the student found, out, found $50 in there, and it said $50 equals 50% fail. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know about you, but, but I'm not a fan of tests, and I'm especially not a fan of assessment tests. You know the tests that you take throughout school or whatever you're doing to assess 
how uh, what your aptitude is or how well you'll you'll uh, you'll do it a certain ever, uh, area. I remember before I got in, went into the electrical union, we had to take the uh, ASFAB test, which is the test that everybody takes for the military. And uh, I was so stressed about taking. It. I did really well on it, but uh, but I don't like assessment tests. I don't like evaluation tests. And I'm sure you feel the same way. It's kind of like being put on the hot seat, not really given the chance to really perform. Well, tonight, in as we get into the word tonight, we're going to see that Jesus is laying out his first parable, to, to his first kingdom parable, or a parable about the kingdom of God, and it's an assessment. It's an assessment about you and I, about the fertility of our hearts and how we're going to receive the kingdom of God, His Word, as we look at this, this parable. Now, the word parable uh, is actually two Greek words put together. Para, which is a, a prepositional word, and it just means uh, to come alongside. And, so, um, and then bole, which means to cast. Um, and so it's to cast alongside. And what a parable is all about is giving some truth in a in a story that we would uh, the, whoever the speaker is speaking to would all understand. Now we're a little removed from uh, first century farming culture, but uh, uh, the first century farming culture would understand this story and they'd be able to apply it. But we find in scripture that parables do something else also. Sometimes and more often than not, than not in the New Testament, parables are used to reveal truth to those who are ready to hear and hide truth from those who are hardened, have hardened their hearts to the gospel and to the kingdom of God. And so that's what we're going to find here. Now, before we read this parable, I'll give you an example of a parable from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that Nathan the prophet comes before King David with a parable. If you remember, King David had Uriah murdered um, because he wanted to get with his, Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and he got with her, and he got her pregnant, and it was like, oh, crud, how do I cover this up? And so, ah, I know just what to do, murder uh, her husband. So he, he sent Uriah off to the front lines of the battle line, had Uriah murdered, uh, and Uriah, who was this faithful, faithful guy to David and Israel, he had him murdered, and then Nathan the prophet comes to David and said, hey, David, I've got a situation to deal with. And David's like, well, what's the situation? It's like, well, there's this really wealthy man, and there's a neighbor who's really, really poor. And this really wealthy man wants to throw a banquet for all of his friends. So he took from his neighbor this little lamb. It was the only possession his neighbor had, this little lamb, and he slaughtered it, and he fed it to all of his friends. And David was just outraged at this whole thing. And he said, bring the man here so we can put him to death. We're going to take care of this guy. And Nathan pointed his finger at King David and said, you are the man. First time in Scripture, you are the man occurs. (laughs) But that's a good example of a parable in the Old Testament. Well, now Jesus is going to start speaking in parables. And we're going to find out why. So let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it, in, in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, well, let me just pause there for a moment, set the setting. There's so many people that are gathering to hear 
what Jesus is saying, what he's going to teach. Not just what he's saying, but also what is he going to do? Remember, the crowds have heard about his miracles. They've heard about the things that this man does. And they're all curious about Jesus, and they're all coming to him. They're thronging to him so that he's got to get in a boat because the crowds are just going to push in, push in, push in. So his solution is, let me teach from a boat. Then they can't push on in any further. Now, the Sea of Galilee, the, probably where this is happening, is actually kind of between Capernaum and, um, I forgot the other city's name. But it kind of goes upward. So in a sense, Jesus is in the bottom, and, and it's almost like he has a natural stadium built around him that he can speak, and all these people can hear what he's saying. And so this is what he chooses to say to them. Listen, behold. Okay, listen up. This is important stuff. I'm going to tell you something really important, so make sure your ears are ready to hear this. Behold. Let me get your attention. A sower, a farmer, went out to sow, to throw out seed. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Verse 5, other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Verse 7, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Verse 8, and other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, it's interesting, this parable, the first parable Jesus teaches is, is about this farming situation of sowing seed, casting out seed, something that they were all familiar with. Now, just to, so we make sure we understand, before the farmer goes to sow the seed, plant the seed, he's going to plow the ground. He's going to prepare it. I um, used to live in Garden Grove, and we had the Johnson family farm in Garden Grove. Now, here's the difference between a garden and a farm. One, the man farms, the gar- woman gardens, okay? That's one thing. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I had a windmill. I went to Harbor Freight. I bought a windmill. That way it was uh, more of a farm. And, and I also had chickens, so it was more of a farm, less of a garden. Um, but one of the things about Garden Grove was I had this amazing soil. And, and, of course, I didn't know it at the time, but I could plant anything. I was like, man, this farming stuff is easy. Anything I plant, I, I, it grows, and it's amazing. Uh, it, the only problem was weeds would also grow, and it, weeds, weeding was a huge issue. I hated weeding. But then we moved to Orange, and where I live over by Taft and Tustin, and the, where I moved in Orange, the soil is awful. It's clay. No matter how much I water it, if I water it, it just becomes thicker and harder, so I can't rototill it. When I try to take a rototiller to it, it's like, go, 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 go. I need a concrete sod to get through my dirt. You know, it's just the way it goes. So I, I, I realized, wait a minute, this farming stuff is not as easy as I thought. And so my wife asked me, as we've been thinking about the backyard, hey, are we going to do a, a garden here? I'm like, first of all, woman, we do a farm. She, she's like, whatever, Dave. But, uh, <laughs> but I said, no, I'm not going to do one here. This is ridiculous. The ground is terrible. It would just take too much work. So in order to, to, to throw out the seed, the farmer's going to go. Now, you have to understand, Israel, Israel's rocks. It's rocks everywhere there. So before the farmer's getting ready to sow the seed, he's going to terrace the landscape. 
He's going to make sure that he has good fields ready to plant. And he's going to remove rocks and all that sort of stuff. And so then the edges and the outskirts of the fields end up with different areas. They have rocky ground and uh, there's weeded areas and there's uh, the wayside or the path uh, that would go alongside next to the fields. But that's what we're talking about here. So then Jesus' disciples respond to him in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, this passage is kind of harsh because you and I keep hearing this message, this gospel message that Jesus loves you, God loves you, he wants you to turn desperately, he pursues after you, he wants you to repent of your sin and turn towards him, but now we read this passage and it seems like he doesn't want you to turn from the sound of it. Now, I want you to realize that's not the case at all, because we're talking about the individual's hearts and how they respond to the word in this parable, and we'll get into that more in just a minute. But Understand that he says first to the disciples, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a lot of the parables, sometimes I don't feel like the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to me. Sometimes I'm actually a little more confused than enlightened. And maybe you feel the same way sometimes when you read the scripture. Well, understand this, the disciples who Jesus is speaking to, telling them that they've received the secrets of the kingdom feel the exact same way. They're like, wait, we've received it? How come we don't understand it? You know, it's that check. Wait, do you understand it, John? Yeah, of course I understand it. No, you don't understand it, you know. And um, so that word secret there is mystery. You've, received the, you've been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. Well, what is the mystery? I think it's twofold. I think it's Jesus Christ is the first thing that is the secret to the kingdom of God or the mystery that's been given to them. It's the word incarnate. It's, it's God revealing himself to them so that they can know what pleases God and how to be a part of his kingdom. The second part of it is that there, now all of a sudden the kingdom has come and this announcement has come that God is establishing his kingdom here on earth. And we've talked about this already in the past, how the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is, is a, almost an already but not yet fully fulfilled it started with Jesus Christ, and it will end with his establishment of the millennial reign. And that'll, that'll finalize after that thousand years. That'll finalize the kingdom of God. But he quotes here from Isaiah about why he's speaking in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, it's not that God doesn't want people to hear his word. He does. That's why He's given it to us. It's not that God doesn't want us to know His revelations. Otherwise, He wouldn't have sent Jesus Christ. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have become man incarnate and died on a cross for you and me. He wouldn't have done it if that's not what He wanted. But He's definitely going to not just throw it out there for everybody to understand who doesn't care at all. See, we've got to ask. We've got to seek. We've got to knock. And the door will be opened to us. If we seek, we're going to find. If we ask, we'll be answered. And that's where the disciples are at. They're with Jesus. So he begins to explain the parable to them. Now, three things in this parable, three parts. We have a sower. 
we have the seed and we have the soil. And uh, just three, three main characters, so, so to speak. The sower, well, I believe that's God in this parable. I think we can apply it outside later on. We'll talk about that. But in this parable, I think it's God. God is the sower. And he sows the word, the, the seed. He, he scatters the word out. And then we have the soil. The soil is our hearts, us as individuals, how we receive the word of God. So Jesus says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, again, this sounds like almost like a chastisement coming from Jesus, like he's correcting him, like, man, come on, why are you guys so dumb? Why can't you get this? But that's not what he's doing. He's letting us understand that, hey, if we're going to understand any of the teachings of Jesus, any of the parables, any of the Word of God, we've got to understand this one, and it's we've got to have hearts ready to receive the Word of God. Because if our hearts aren't ready to receive it, we're not going to understand a thing. And here's the explanation, verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Remember the birds there came and gathered up the seed. The seed never even had a chance. The seed went out, and the, and the response to the, the word being cast out wasn't to hear or to listen or to respond. The, their, their response was, I don't care. I'm, I want to get out of here. I, uh, this last weekend, I had the opportunity to speak for Calvary Chapel Voyage um, in Fountain Valley. They, they asked me to speak for their men's breakfast, and um, they asked me to speak about apologetics. Now, apologetics is um, to give a defense for the faith. That's, that's uh, s- simply what it means. And um, one of the things I was talking about is the importance of apologetics is to remove roadblocks or barriers that come up or in the way of someone responding to the Word of God. But we can't make someone respond. We can just cause them to question the things that they believe about reality. That, like, for instance, cause them to question that there is no God. Maybe they believe there is no God, and you cause them to question those things. But you can't make them receive the Word. In fact, there's so many people I've spoken to in my lifetime as of yet that when you talk to them about the Bible... It's total nonsense to them. They don't understand it. They, my, my cousin, who's um, an unbeliever, when he talks to me at, at Christmas time or holiday parties, one of his questions to me often is, well, I, I don't understand how you can, uh, don't you ever run out of things to talk about about the Bible? I'm like, no, man. It's, it's every time you get into the Word of God, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper, and it's amazing. It's living and active. He completely doesn't understand this. It's nonsense to him. He's that soil, the path. That's where he's at currently. He, the seed gets cast out. I'll share scripture with him. Nah, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to go do my thing. That's, that's the seed along the path that's sown. They hear it, and Satan just immediately comes and takes it away, snatches it away so that they do not respond to it. Then there's the, the seed, these other three types of seed or soils. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They hear the word, and they receive it, and they're excited. They respond to it with joy. They're, they're, they're so excited. But it says, verse 17, they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
and others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So I want to talk about these two soils a little bit together. One soil is stuff we don't want. It's, it's the rocky ground, and it, it, it springs up fast, but persecution and tribulation uh, cause it to wither. Now, the, the word wither there is the same word when, when Jesus was in the synagogue in chapter 3, and the man with the withered hand comes in, if you remember. It, it's lifeless, dead, uh, it's withered. And that's the same idea that th- this plant springs up, it shows leaves, it's like, wow, this, it sprung up so fast. But it just withers. There's no real root to it or life. It doesn't receive the nutrients it needs, and it dies quickly. And it is the stuff that we don't want in life. It's the persecution. It's the tribulation. Um, it's, it's the things that come out against us, uh, maybe for being a Christian. Um, you know, obviously, in America, we don't have deal with tri- tribulation or persecution as much as other countries. It's becoming more often, more common here. Uh, of course, the persecution doesn't arrive in torture or beatings or things like that so much as it does in uh, loss of jobs or, or, of course, recently we've seen some small businesses be put out of business because of their stance for their Christian values. So this would be the stuff we don't want. Then the other soil, the soil sown, thrown, sown around among the thorns, it too grows but it's choked out by the stuff that people do want, the things that people desire after. Notice it's, it's choked out because they, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it improves. It proves unfruitful. And this would be the same word that's used when the crowds are thronging towards Jesus. They're, they're pushing in and circling around him. It's that same word for choked. It's uh, thronging. It, it, it can't survive. And, and it's that, that desire for the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the lust of the flesh, so to speak. Those are the things that choke this out. The things that, well, I heard the word. I responded to it. I shot up, but now I kind of want to pursue after this or I'm kind of over the Christian thing. I'm kind of over responding to God's word. I'm ready to do my thing. I uh, was reading a while back ago, I read uh, Lee Strobel's uh, Case for Faith, and I wanted to share a little story from that book about Charles Templeton. Now, if you know who Charles Templeton is, he was a preaching associate of Billy Graham. In the 1940s, he, he was a part of Billy Graham's crusades, and he would uh, preach with him, and he was a, a very, very um, a, a public person with Billy Graham. And he, he preached the gospel large large crowds in big areas, major areas. However, he started to have intellectual doubts about the gospel. And as he questioned the truth of the Scripture and other core Christian beliefs, he finally abandoned his faith and made an unsuccessful attempt to persuade Billy Graham to do the same. He felt sorry for Billy, and this is what he said concerning Billy Graham. He committed intellectual suicide by closing his mind. Templeton resigned from the ministry and became a novelist and news commentator. He also wrote a critique of the Christian faith titled, Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. So Templeton had been one who was 
gathering people to, to Jesus. He was proclaiming the good news. He was excited about it. And then all of a sudden, he started to have this doubt come in. He started to question things. And, and it, of course, in the Case for Faith book, Lee Strobel says that one of the major things that was causing him to doubt was when he saw uh, natural evil or human pain or these sorts of things, he questioned whether God was really loving or not. And so he decided that, okay, I'm done with this. A loving God wouldn't really give all this pain. A loving God wouldn't allow children to starve. So I'm leaving the faith. Well, when Lee Strobel interviewed him, he was 83, and he was suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but he was, he was still, he had a little trouble putting together some of the details of things, but, but he, was, he, was, um, he understood what was going on, and he was uh, very uh, <clears throat> with it when Lee Strobel interviewed him. And this is what he talked about. He said, I started considering the plagues that sweep across parts of the planet and indiscriminately kill. More often than not, painfully, all kinds of people, the ordinary, the decent, and the rotten. And it just became crystal clear to me that it is not possible for an intelligent person to believe that there is a deity who loves. When asked what he thought of Jesus Christ, this was Templeton's reply. reply. He wouldn't acknowledge him as God, but he responded, He was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. He's the most important thing in my life. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. In my view, he declared, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. Kind of strange for Templeton to answer that way about the person who he's walked away from and he's tried to convince others to do the same. So Lee Strobel said, what was going on? Uh, Or sorry, that's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded Templeton's eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. What was going on? Was this an unguarded glimpse into his soul? I felt drawn to him and wanted to comfort him. At the same time, the journalist and me wanted to dig to the core of what was prompting this reaction. Missed him? Why? Missed him how? In a gentle voice, I asked, in what way? Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell that it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply and wiped away a tear. After a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. Finally, quietly, but adamantly, he insisted, enough of that. So sad that Templeton knew this truth. He received the word of God. He sprung up. He became an evangelist. He was out there sharing the gospel with crowds. But then, like that seed sown on rocky ground, withered, dried up, and died because of the persecutions or tribulations. Or, or maybe he was like the, maybe there were other things in life that he desired more, and like the seed sown in the thorny soil with the weeds and the thorns that grew up and choked it out. Whatever it was, clearly Templeton knew more about Jesus than he let on, but also wanted to reject him. So sad that now in his 
well, when he was in his late 80s, he was heartbroken over leaving Jesus Christ. A fertile heart produces fruit. Here's the key thing about this parable. And we're going to see it here in this very last verse, in verse um, 820. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is the soil that I think the parable challenges us about assessing our heart to say, what kind of soil are you? Are you a soil that just completely rejects the Word of God? Okay, I'm done with that. I don't want anything to do with it. Are you a soil that receives the Word of God? You get excited. You're emotional. You may, you may spring up. Oh, man, that was amazing. I was really moved at the, during the worship. or I was really moved by the testimony. And you're excited about it, but it never takes hold in your life to bear fruit. Are you that good soil that not only grows with strong roots, but it begins to bear fruit. Now, here's the thing about farmers that I do know. Farmers could care less about seeing a plant that shoots up and about leaves. Farmers simply care that there's fruit bearing on the plant, that it's actually producing fruit. And this is what the challenge, I think, is to us. I don't think it's a question about, well, which one of these was saved? Was he partially saved, but he's not saved? Or whatever the case is. See, Jesus is confronting a crowd And the whole crowd thinks they're a part of the kingdom of God just because they're Jews. You know, I I would say in America it used to be that just because we were American we were Christian at one point in time. Of course, that that has changed. But maybe maybe even people that sit in church, well, I go to church, I must be a Christian. I'll I'll never forget sitting uh, with some people at dinner and, and the person is telling me that they're a Christian. They believe in God, but they live with their boyfriend. Well, that doesn't seem to measure up to what Jesus calls us out of. See, Jesus calls us out of our sin to repent of our sin. That if we're living with somebody outside of marriage, well, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to make a decision. We're either going to follow him or we're going to and leave our sin or we're going to remain in our sin. But just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. It's the bearing of fruit, the producing of godly fruit that shows you to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what shows you to be part of the kingdom of God. That you bear fruit in accordance with salvation. James tells us that fruit without, uh, faith without works is dead. Well, that's interesting. There it comes. <laughs> All of a sudden my sermon went blank. Um, but James tells us that, that, that if we have faith, if we say, oh, I've got faith, I've got faith, but there are no works... It's completely dead. It's similar to us going up to a person in a coffin going, no pulse, but I think they're still alive. You know? No, they're dead. They're totally dead. In fact, they're getting ready to be buried, and you're saying, no, no, I think we can save them. No, they're dead. They've already been embalmed. They're cold, completely gone. That's what faith is without works. That's what faith is without production of fruit. We can say all day long, I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm a Christian, but if it's not with fruit, if it's not producing the things that show us to be a follower of Christ, it's empty, it's dead, it's not real faith. And uh, Jesus even backs this up in Matthew. He shares a story about um, building your house. And he gives you a choice in Matthew when he talks about it. 
He says, a wise man builds his house on a rock. Versus the foolish man goes and builds his house on the sand. And the problem with building your house on the sand is that the winds come, the waves come, and the house falls down because it never had a solid foundation. But the wise man who built his house on the rock, the winds come and beat against the house, the waves come and beat against the house, but the house still stands. I'll never forget going to Hurricane Katrina one week after the, we got there one week after the, the um, hurricane had hit to go help out. And we were in Mississippi, but we were in Waveland. And there was something very interesting about being there. Of course, the damage was crazy, but we found that almost all the houses had been underwater. Uh, you know, the storm had hit, but the houses were still there. I mean, you could go, and of course, I'm sure the houses had to be torn apart because of the mold and everything like that, but the houses stood. They weren't falling down and collapsed. The houses were still there. They were well-built houses on good foundations. Of course, the owners would share with us how they were up on their roofs or up in the attic because the wave had just completely submerged everything, or the, the water had submerged their houses, and they had pretty much lost it. All their cars were underwater, um, so none of the cars would start. So everything was empty. I mean, we saw, I saw, uh, we saw a boat up in a, a, a freeway sign. That was kind of a cool sight. Um, but the house stood because it was well built on a strong foundation. Jesus tells us the same thing. If we build our house on the rock, if we, if we look to God's word to change us, to confront us, to conform us, to transform us, we're going to be on that rock, that solid rock, and we're going to start producing fruit. You know what the best part about it is? We don't have to strive to do it. We don't have to, plants don't do that. Plants don't strive. I've I've never once seen a plant striving. I don't see a plant sweating. I've never seen a plant working super hard. You just throw in the seed, it grows, and boom, tomatoes. It's like, wow, that was easy. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) I mean, it did it so easy, and that's the way it is when all right, we receive the word with good soil. And then as we bear fruit, we become sowers of the seed. It's an amazing thing. Edward Kimball was a shoe store assistant and a Sunday school teacher in Chicago. Now, he spent hours of his free time visiting the young street kids in Chicago's inner city, trying to win them for Christ. Amazingly, through his ministry, a man by the name of D.L. Moody got saved in 1858. Now, if you never heard of D.L. Moody, Moody became a great preacher. Moody grew up to be this preacher, and in 1879, Moody shared the gospel with F.B. Meyer, and he became a Christian. Meyer shared the gospel with J.W. Chapman, of who Chapman College is actually named after, and Chapman became a Christian. Chapman became a preacher and brought the message of Christ to a baseball player named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a great preacher, and Billy Sunday held a revival in Charlotte, North Carolina, which was so successful that the evangelist Mordecai Ham was invited to Charlotte to preach. Under Ham's preaching, a teenager named Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? How it works when we begin to sow the seed because we've received the seed. We begin to start producing fruit. Now, sometimes we, we may look at ourselves and go, Lord, I, I don't know that I'm producing much fruit. I don't know. Well, let me ask you this. Think about it for a minute. 
Producing fruit doesn't mean that you're Billy Graham and you're holding evangelistic crusades. Producing fruits means that you're controlling your anger in your household or at your workplace. You're not flying off the handle anymore. You're not out of control. You're not making up lame excuses. Well, I'm Irish. I was born this way. I'm Italian or whatever excuse. No, you're saying, I'm changed by Christ. I no longer do that anymore. I no longer fly off the handle anymore because the Lord says that the, <laughs> the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. So I submit my anger to the Lord. I'm no longer lusting after other women. I'm no longer getting on the internet. I'm no longer going after these other things that I used to do because I'm now in Christ. I'm now becoming a more engaged father or mother because I'm in Christ. I'm now saying, okay, home, we're changing the way we were going. We used to watch these things on TV or we used to allow these things in our house, but no more because we're now in Christ. Now we're going to Instruct our children in the way in which they should go towards Jesus Christ. We're changed. That's producing fruit in us. I no longer look at people the same way. I no longer look at enemies and go, oh, I hate your guts. I hope you die. I don't look at them that way. Rather, I see them as lost and unsaved, needing the love of Jesus Christ. Now, when people ask me about my life and my purpose for living, I say it's to to declare the glory of God, to live for Him, to love Him. And to honor him in everything I do, that's bearing fruit within in Jesus Christ's kingdom, in the kingdom of God. That's what the difference is. Listen, I want to encourage you to, to consider what kind of soil your heart is tonight. Whether your, your heart has been uh, maybe rocky soil. Maybe you like coming to church, but you're not really, you're not really responding you hear it. You feel good after church. You feel encouraged. You feel even excited a little bit, lifted up, maybe even happy. But there's no change happening in you outside of this place. You leave Sunday night and you go back to whatever worldly things you were doing before. And each week on Saturday, you do what you're going to do. And Sunday morning, you regret what you've done. And you come back to church because you want to feel good again. But you're not bearing fruit. You're just a plant with no produce. Maybe you're that hard soil. <laughs> you're going, man, preacher, I hear you, but is it time yet? Because, um, you know, <laughs> I, I'm ready to go. Snacks are ready. Coffee's almost ready. Come on, can we get, get out of here? You know, I want to encourage you to consider the soil that your heart is. I don't think in this parable at all Jesus is teaching that you're stuck at being whatever type of soil you are. I don't think that way at all. I, I In fact, I think that there's people that we can be very surprised about. We can think, of, oh, yeah, man, that, if that is rocky, not rocky soil or the path, I don't know what is because that person is not responding. And then all of a sudden they become a Christian. They call you up and they're like, you'll never believe what happened. I gave my life to Christ. You're like, what? <laughs> Are you messing with me? You know, we, we can think that way. But listen, I think we can consider what kind of soil our heart is and say, Lord, I want to be fruitful soil to you. Lord, like Jessica was saying, I want to respond to your word. I want to start reading your word, and I want to start living it out and bearing fruit. So I want to encourage you, make that your prayer. Listen, a prayer, a a moment of prayer or saying, Jesus, come into my life, that's important. It's important to pray the sinner's prayer. That's what we call it. It's important to pray that prayer, but that's not salvation. Salvation is 
proven by the fruit production in your life. Acknowledgement is only one part. And that's what the prayer is. Lord, I need your salvation. Now, it's will you live in faith? That's where the, the uh, um, produce is start, begins to happen. Now, it's not the works that save us. We know that. But, but there's certainly works that follow our salvation. So I want to I challenge you with that and how you respond to the word. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much for your word that you've given to us, God, that you've revealed to us your kingdom. You've made known to us the mysteries, God. And we thank you for these stories that help us to understand <laughs> these spiritual truths through physical things. And Lord, I do ask that, God, we would be fruitful soil for your gospel. Lord, that your word would multiply in us. God, that we would produce fruit 60-fold, 100-fold that would bring glory to you. I thank you, Lord, and I, I pray if anybody's struggling in this room tonight, Lord, they would just cry out to you. Lord, that they would repent of their sin, turn to you and say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I need you to save me. I'm ready to follow you now. I've been playing games, but no more. I'm ready to follow you. So, Lord, we do thank you. Bless our worship now, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.